Look under the chairs around you, Ben says. There's some A4 bits of paper. That was my sermon that disappeared earlier this morning. <laughs> the major tourist attraction on the island of Jersey is the War Tunnels exhibition. It records how the inhabitants of the island coped with living under German occupation during the Second World War. It was a bizarre situation. In many ways, life carried on as normal. But the Germans in charge introduced an increasing number of rules and regulations that people had to follow. The first of which was you had to drive on the right-hand side of the road. And people responded in different ways. Some actively cooperated with the occupying forces. Others concentrated on looking out for their own interests only. But there were many who kind of got on with living their lives in a situation that they found difficult, but who inwardly remained a fierce, fervent loyalty to Britain and longed for the day when the islands would be liberated. They they kind of lived in a situation which wasn't ideal, but in their hearts all the time was, ah, we want to be free. We want to be free of the occupying forces. We, we conform, but in our hearts we don't submit. For them, every single day of their lives, although they were civilians, they were living on the front line. I use that as an example because in Christian, as Christians we may find ourselves in a similar position. Along with everybody else, we live our every ordinary, everyday ordinary lives, but inwardly, Our primary loyalty is somewhere else. We acknowledge in our hearts a different lordship. We belong to a different kingdom. Our loyalty is to our Father in heaven, and it's his kingdom that we long to come, which will make a difference, which will change things. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will come be done. Yes, we live in this world as it is here and now and we get on with our lives, but this is not how we want it to be. This is not how it should be. We know that things can and should be different. We know that things can and should be better. And the Lord's Prayer gives expression to a determination to say that although I live in a world which disowns Jesus Christ and has no time for him, in my heart... I set aside Jesus Christ as Lord, and I honour him as the rightful sovereign of this world. And in the ordinary, everyday situations in which I live my life, my prayer inwardly is, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. It is a prayer for the invasion of God's kingdom into our present life and time and experience. To pray this prayer is to set up the standard of the kingdom of heaven in your heart and say, that is where my true allegiance lies. And whatever else I do in going through the motions of everyday life, I will always be on the lookout to do something, to say something, however minor or insignificant, to show that actually Jesus is the one who is the absolute authority in my life. When we pray, hallowed, be thy name. It means, God, let your name be holy. God's name is holy already, of course. It's not as if God's name has been contaminated and needs to undergo a process of purification or sanctification. But it's a prayer that says, in my heart, may your name be honoured as holy. My process of praying this prayer exactly expresses that. We honour the name of God as we pray to him. 
In my heart, I want to honour God as the one who is in charge. I want to honour God as the one who claims my first loyalty. I want to honour God as the one for whom I live my life. May your name be honoured through the words I speak, or the words I sing in praise, the words I use in worship or in prayer. May your name be honoured in my conversation with other people. May your name be honoured by how I live as well, the way I think and the way I feel and the way I act. May I not fail. May I not let you down or bring your name into disrepute. But it's a prayer as well that God would vindicate the honour of his name in front of an unbelieving world. A world that often uses only his name as a swear word. When people point at Christians and ask with derision in their voice, where is your God? It's a prayer that says, God, may your name be upheld and honoured and recognised as holy. Show who you are in answer to your people's prayers. When God promised the prophet Ezekiel that he would bring his people home from exile, he says, I'm not doing this just for your sake. I'm doing this for the sake of my great name, which has been dishonoured and profaned among the nations because of what you've done and because of what has happened to you. The prayer that God's name would be made holy then is a prayer that God would show himself to be holy. That God would show himself to be the God who is in charge. That God would show himself to be the God who answers prayer. That people would recognise, yes, God is real, God is there, and God is involved in our world. It's a prayer that God would let the nations know that he is Lord by showing that he is holy as he works in and through and for his people. So as Christians, we are people who live our lives with a different loyalty. We're like Robin Hood and his merry men. A small group of outlaws who have pledged their loyalty and allegiance to the country's true king, King Richard, who is away fighting the Crusades. And they live their lives when the country is under a different lordship. But in their hearts they're saying, no, we honour the true king. It's his return we're waiting for. It's his loyalty that we pledge our lives to. It's him that we are serving and looking to uphold his cause in the country, even as it struggles under a wrong and a false ruler. As they honour the true king and they hope for his return, so we do the same as we pray this prayer. It offers us a mandate for what it means to live for God in a godless world. It's a prayer that's addressed to our Father in heaven. Praise for his kingdom to come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Two different kingdoms here. The kingdom of heaven where God reigns supreme and the kingdom of this world which passively ignores or actively resists the rule of God. But the prayer asks for things to be done God's way, here, on earth, as happens already in heaven. It's a petition that God's kingdom would invade our space, our time, our world, and change things for the better. It's a prayer that looks forward to the end of time, when Jesus promises he will return in power and glory to establish his kingdom. But also it prays that in innumerable ways, right here, right now, the reality of God's kingdom would be present to make a difference and to change things. So we offer each day to God. And we ask that we would be his agents, implementing his will, working for his kingdom in enemy territory, if you like. And we look around the world and we pray for his kingdom to come, his will to be done in such apparently God-forsaken places like Iraq, Syria, eastern Ukraine, Guinea and Liberia and Sierra Leone, 
and North Korea, and the list goes on and on and on. Lord, let your kingdom come. We see that things are not the way they're supposed to be, and we pray for change, and we pray for God's people in those parts of the world, that God would show them how to live their lives for him in impossible situations. That in and through their lives, as they live for him, his kingdom would come, his will would be done. We pray this prayer as an act of defiance, refusing to give up hope, refusing to accept that evil will have the last word, refusing to relinquish control of this world or parts of this world to the powers of darkness. But instead we long for, we pray for, we look for, we work for the coming of the kingdom of God and the difference that that makes. Give us this day our daily bread. It's the well-known phrase we use. Though there are strong arguments in favour of the translation, give us today the bread that we need for tomorrow. Whatever translation you opt for, this is the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer that specifically focuses on us and our needs. Up to this point, the focus has been on God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Now, for the first time, the prayer turns around and we think about ourselves, our basic needs, bread representing whatever resources we might need to make it through today and tomorrow. I've spoken to lots of people who say, I never pray for myself. Feels foolish, selfish. Places what they see as an exaggerated emphasis on their own importance. With so much going on in the world, how can God possibly bother about me? Yet there are good reasons why God can and does bother. Firstly, as your heavenly father, he cares about you and has promised to provide for your daily needs. So it's entirely appropriate to ask him for whatever you need to make it through that day. But more than that, if you are living for him as an agent for his kingdom in this world, then you are extremely important and vital to the cause. Every agent working for God in enemy territory is one that is treasured and valued and prized. Because you live him, because you work for him, because you call on his name, you are vital to the kingdom. Because you are an outpost of loyalty to the name of Christ. He values and treasures you and wants to resource you in what you're doing in your daily living. I promise not to bore you all for weeks to come with stories of Cambodia, but being in that setting did bring it home to me how important this prayer is. Give us this day our daily bread. Or give us today the bread we need for tomorrow. In Cambodia, families are split apart because fathers can't find enough work to support their families. So they go across the border to work illegally in Thailand. Children are vulnerable to being trafficked as unscrupulous people exploit the need and poverty of their families, take them across to work as slaves in all sorts of contexts. There are numerous social problems that derive explicitly and directly from people's difficulty actually to find enough bread to feed themselves today and tomorrow. The Cambodian Hope Organisation for the organisation with which we worked when we were out there, has a vision for building strong, self-sufficient, hope-filled communities. So one of the highlights for me and and, and many members of the team actually was visiting a pastor's house. Right in the middle of nowhere, you had to drive along a track and then walk away to find it. Before he became a Christian, he and his wife uh, would drink and gamble their money away. She became a Christian first. He did uh, a while later after being on a bender where he doesn't remember absolutely anything at all about that week, just a complete blank in his mind. But at the end of it, he came out knew, knowing he needed to become a Christian. Now, on a small plot of land, 
supported by Cho, he's keeping pigs, chickens, frogs, growing rice and papaya, so that he can feed his family and his extended family, because he's looking after his nephews and nieces, because their parents are away, working illegally in Thailand, and trying to show people how it's possible, actually, to be self-sufficient if you use the ground and the resources you have effectively so that you can support yourself and your family and begin to build a community that can be self-sufficient rather than needing to go across the border and to work illegally in Thailand. They do that through home gardens, they do that through motorcycle workshops, they do that through sewing workshops, trying to enable people to support themselves so that they have enough to feed themselves and their family and the extended village so that they can come together rather than being split apart and vulnerable to exploitation. For me, seeing that pastor working in his home garden in action brought home to me how actually important it is It's vital to have bread for today and tomorrow. And it's a sign of the kingdom. It's a sign of wholeness. It's a sign of how things ought to be and should be, demonstrating in a practical way, this is how life should be lived. That pastor had served with the Khmer Rouge. He would have been involved in the horrific atrocities that took place in Cambodia 40 years ago. Yet the people we spoke to were looking forward to building a new future for the nation. And we're doing so on a platform of forgiveness. Forgiveness from God for the things that they had done, going hand in hand with the readiness to forgive each other as well. Huge crimes committed. But the readiness to say, God actually can forgive that. God can enable people to begin again. We can look forward to the future and with hand in hand with God, we can rebuild the nation. So forgiveness too is a sign of the kingdom. The opportunity for a fresh start built on reconciliation rather than a perpetuation of past conflict and hatred and the desire for revenge. That is expressed in the petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness received from God for the things that we've done and extended to others as well. Then the final petitions combined, the final petitions then, combined an acknowledgement of human frailty with a sense of dependence on God. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a prayer for those who know that they need and have been granted God's forgiveness and are also acutely aware that left to their own devices, they will just carry on doing the same stuff over and over and over again. Lord, forgive me. Help me not to do the same thing again. Forgive me. Help me to change. Forgive me, lead me not into temptation, close the door that I would go through if I were left to my own devices. Enable me to live life a different way. Direct my feet into right paths. And the quest for deliverance from evil is entirely appropriate in a dangerous world where to live a life of explicit allegiance to Christ can leave you feeling vulnerable. In some parts of the world, vulnerable to violence, physical attack and imprisonment even martyrdom. This is a prayer uttered by those who are living and working for God in dangerous situations, asking God to keep them safe and enable them to work as agents for his kingdom on their front line. The Lord's Prayer is brief and short on specifics. It's a prayer that Jesus himself prayed. You find different versions of it in Matthew and in Luke. That could mean that the first followers of Jesus didn't see it as a prayer to be loaned by rote. They felt free to adapt it. 
Actually, it's quite possible that Jesus himself used the prayer as a framework rather than praying the exact words each time. It's not designed to be a straitjacket for our prayers. So if you muddle the order up, it's not the end of the world. It is designed to open a window into our own lives and into the world. The chance to see ourselves and the world through the eyes of God and through that vision to be drawn into praying for change. I really appreciate you, Keith, which is the way which you used phrases from the prayer as a chance to build on other prayers, reflecting on them. What does it mean for our Father in heaven, for his name to be holy, for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, for, for us to have daily bread, to forgive, to be set free from evil? That's how the prayer can and should be used. It opens windows, each phrase. What does that mean? How can I fill that with my own thoughts and feelings and hopes and longings? The words are like baskets into which we can put our own given, God-led thoughts and prayers and ideas. The Synod of Bern in 1532 described the Lord's Prayer as the true Christian prayer. The water jug or pail with which such great grace is drawn from the fountain of Jesus Christ and poured into our hearts. As the words are on our lips, in our minds and in our hearts, we can be filled with the knowledge of God's kingdom, and we can pray that the same would take place throughout the world. It's a prayer that's familiar to us all. If it wasn't at the start of the service, it is by now. Maybe the words are so familiar that we can say them without thinking. But let me encourage you to use the words as a framework into which you can place your needs, your hopes, your longings, your dreams, and entrust them all to the God who calls you to live for him, to be agents of his kingdom in a world which doesn't acknowledge his lordship. But as you carry this prayer in your hearts and minds and live it out in practice, may the grace of God, as he answers this prayer, may you be enabled to make a difference for his kingdom on your front line, wherever that might be. I'm going to close using a Jewish prayer, the Kaddish prayer, that actually is similar to the Lord's Prayer in many ways and might be one of the prayers that Jesus adapted when he taught his disciples how to pray. Let's pray. Magnified and sanctified, may God's great name be in the world he created, as he wills. And may his kingdom come in your life, and in your days, and in the lives of all the house of Israel, swiftly and soon. Amen.